Uh, I really appreciate the uh, invitation to come back, not only to see what's happened to Columbus and <clears throat> to Ohio State over the uh, ensuing 15 years, but uh, also to see a lot of old friends and uh, people I know. Uh, it's been probably 13 years since I've been schwellerized, and my self-esteem was really getting sort of high, so I thought I'd better come back and <laughs> get cut back down to size uh, again. Um, and uh, 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 my old buddy Ted Hopp, Ted Hop, who called me at the last minute and said I couldn't be at your talk, but don't take it personally. Uh, great to uh, see him again, and uh, John Mueller and uh, Alex Went and uh, a lot of the other uh, terrific folks that uh, have come together here in, uh, in IR. Uh, and so uh, I'm glad to be back and uh, also glad to uh, have your comments uh, on this paper. I'm fooling around with it. Liberal America's illiberalism or America's illiberal liberalism or I, I keep Moving things around, uh, it's all grammatically correct, and I don't think it changes the meaning too much, but I haven't really decided uh, exactly what the title is. Let me tell you a little bit about <coughs> the background of uh, how I got interested in this. It seems to me uh, the increasing illiberalism of the United States uh, of the past few years uh, is something of a puzzle. Uh, and I'll tell you in a few minutes why I think that uh, this is puzzling, but you know, the, the key manifestation uh, of this illiberalism, uh, it seems to me, is pretty clear. Uh, internationally, uh, we've engaged in preemptive war, uh, and we're overtly pursuing a strategy of uh, hegemony, uh, if not empire. And in fact, I never thought, having gone to graduate school in the 1980s, uh, that I'd ever hear anybody uh, make the case for imperialism in a positive sense. I mean, it used to be imperialism was a dirty word. Uh, it, it no longer is anymore. As Max Boot tells us, uh, we should all get jodhpurs and pith helmets and uh, emulate the, uh, the, the British. And even domestically, uh, there, there's been uh, increasing manifestations of illiberalism. The USA Patriot Act, uh, the uh, NSA domestic uh, surveillance, uh, and even uh, in a number of cases, a willingness uh, and a willingness to defend overtly rendition and uh, torture uh, of terror suspects. Uh, so it seems to me the increasing illiberalism of the United States uh, is uh, uh, pretty much an uncontroversial fact. Uh, the question is why, and the question is also why is this puzzling? Uh, I think this is puzzling because I don't think it's purely reducible to uh, the September 11th attacks uh, and the subsequent global war on terrorism. And in fact, what I want to try to argue uh, over the next half hour or so is that, in fact, this illiberalism, in fact, has deep roots and a lot of continuity uh, with uh, previous periods uh, in American history. Uh, I think, and this drove Ted crazy at dinner last night, that there are a lot of continuities, for example, between the uh, Bush administration, or excuse me, the Clinton administration and the Bush 43 administration. And some, of the, some uh, others of you might also find that a pretty jarring claim uh, to accept. Uh, and in fact, uh, what also is puzzling is that uh, a lot of the uh, manifestations uh, of illiberalism, both domestically and internationally, uh, are uh, relatively uh, bipartisan. Um, and so, given that, uh, this does seem to be a, uh, a puzzling development. Now, as I suggested before, um, whoops, 
the conventional wisdom would be to say there's no puzzle uh, in this whatsoever. Uh, that 9-11 uh, uh, awoke the United States up from the 10-year uh, snooze that Fukuyama's end of history started, uh, and that we're following uh, the well-worn path that a lot of people going back at least as far as Harold Laswell suggested that liberal states experience uh, when they're faced with uh, uh, serious threats. Okay, And so that's, that's all there is to it, end of story. Now, what I want to do is to make a little bit different argument. Uh, I want to suggest that uh, it isn't 9-11, uh, and it's not this old uh, you know, and longstanding uh, uh, phenomenon of uh, war, war constricting domestic liberties, but I want to, uh, in fact, suggest that there's something deeply ingrained in American political culture in what uh, the Harvard uh, political scientist Louis Hartz called our liberal tradition that, in fact, uh, is uh, ultimately uh, implicated in our increasing uh, illiberalism. Now, maybe it's the case that I'm the victim of the last book I read, and the fact that I'm reading a book that was published in, like, 1956 just shows you how far behind uh, on the reading list I am. Uh, but, in fact, I've come to the conclusion that Hartz's book, The Liberal Tradition in America, is now one of those one or two books that if you were uh, stranded on a desert island, uh, you'd want to have with you, uh, along maybe with Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War and Randy's first book. But those three... Second book. Oh, okay. I need to be shilling for the second and not the first. Okay. Uh, and, in fact, uh, I think that Hartz uh, explains uh, a lot, in my view, uh, of what's going on today in the... Uh, uh, in, in the current illiberal environment. Now, the question is, how would American liberalism, and, and I'm going to unpack this because liberalism is a, a, a hugely freighted term uh, and one that needs a, a lot of defining in order for it to be useful, but just briefly, how might the liberal tradition account for uh, contemporary American illiberalism? Uh, I think there were basically three mechanisms, and I, I'll, I'll sort of lay them out now and then in the course of the talk try to develop them, hopefully, to uh, a little bit more of your satisfaction. But my argument's going to be that, the, that our liberal tradition leads us to see the global war on terrorism as a very different and fundamentally more dangerous sort of war uh, than, for example, the Cold War. And if you look in the paper, uh, I've got you know, plenty of quotes, I think, that back that up uh, from the uh, Bush administration. Moreover, the threat that the global war on terrorism presents to us is not just physical, although there is a big element to that, but it's also existential. It's a threat to our way of life. And this is really what activates the, uh, the, the liberal tradition, and, and I'll say a little bit more about that. And this is a threat that can't be managed. Okay? You can't contain or deter this threat. It has to be, in uh, Huntington's uh, Hartzian phrase, extirpated. Uh, and there are two ways uh, that the liberal tradition extirpates uh, non-liberal threats. Uh, the positive way, the carrot, or the soft way, would be the spread and promotion of democracy. Uh, and the hard way is a ruthless and unceasing war on, uh, on terrorism. Okay. So let me give you a, a road map uh, for the rest of the talk. Rick, please let me know, uh, you know when I get close to the time or maybe I'll just look and see if people are falling asleep. 
uh, and I'll know when to, to, to wind it up. But I, I want to uh, try to, to go through four basic things, and if there's enough time, uh, I, I can try to preempt what I think are the obvious criticisms of, uh, of what I've done. But certainly, I, I want to unpack a little bit more uh, Hartz's liberal tradition argument uh, for you. Because uh, I, I think, unfortunately, despite my enthusiasm for the book, probably most graduate students uh, uh, have not read it, uh, and probably uh, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of colleagues uh, probably read it a long time ago and haven't thought about it since then. Secondly, I want to make the argument uh, that the Bush administration and the neoconservative movement that you know has been so important both inside the, in, in, uh, the administration and outside of it as sort of the intellectual architects uh, for the current war on terrorism, I, I want to make the case that they fall square, squarely within what Hartz would call America's liberal tradition. Uh, that's actually, I think, an easy case to make uh, and will be relatively uncontroversial. The two controversial parts of the talk, I think, will be, first of all, establishing the links between the liberal tradition um, and America's increasing illiberalism and abroad, uh, abroad and at home. Uh, it's going to be a challenge because it's a counterintuitive argument, uh, but I'll, I'll give you the, the data or the evidence that I have for that. And then secondly, making what I think is a Hartzian argument about the importance of realism as an ideological counterweight to liberalism uh, in American foreign policy. Uh, and here the problem, I think, will be more normative, because I think most people think that realists uh, are basically evil people. Uh, and I think a lot of people think that uh, realism uh, is deeply implicated in uh, the Bush administration foreign policy uh, and in a lot of how we're uh, waging the global war on terrorism. So uh, I I'm not saying you can't beat me up on any of these four points, but I'm just telling you I think the, the points you're really going to be throwing food at are number three and uh, number four. So let me talk just briefly about the liberal tradition in America, and, and let me start uh, at... Uh, first, uh, first place, uh, which is uh, what is liberalism? It's very important. Uh, <laughs> liberalism in in hearts. Yeah, there, there we go. I think we got to get there. Excellent, excellent. Uh, and I'm sorry you didn't come. Uh, liberalism in uh, Hartz's. Uh, conception does not mean little l liberalism, what we mean by the left of the political spectrum, Ted Kennedy, Hillary Clinton, Mike Dukakis, uh, you know, whoever that is, Al Franken. I guess when I did this uh, last night at Ohio Wesleyan, I had Al Franken there. And actually, if you put Ted's picture and Al Franken's picture side by side, but I, I, I won't go there. Um, what Hartz has in mind is big L or classical liberalism, the liberalism of Adam Smith, of Immanuel Kant, I should have had a test to see if you could identify these, but most especially uh, of John Locke. And in fact, uh, a synonym for Hartz uh, in the liberal tradition for liberalism is what he calls Lockeanism. Uh, and the core tenets of Lockeanism are uh, familiar to all of us. Uh, a commitment to individual freedom, a commitment to uh, or belief in the importance of equality of opportunity, uh, a uh, attraction to free markets and unfettered trade, uh, and finally, uh, and perhaps centrally, uh, a belief that political democracy and political uh, representativeness uh, are a fundamental right uh, of human beings. Now, Hartz's argument in the, uh, the liberal tradition 
uh, was uh, to say that American liberalism, uh, as a result of uh, the lack of our feudal past, the fact that America was born essentially democratic, and the fact that it grew up in the 19th century in a relatively benign security environment, uh, meant that our liberalism embraced some very distinct propositions. Uh, and the four key ones uh, are the ones that I have up here. First, that development is easy. We were born democratic. If we were born democratic, we're such putzes, anybody could be democratic. Secondly, a belief that all good things go together, uh, that democracy is not only normatively good, but it's also good because uh, democracies don't go to war with each other. Democracies are more likely to have market economies. Today, we say democracies uh, don't sponsor terrorism against each other. I mean, all these uh, uh, classic examples of good things coming together. Third premise is that radicalism and revolution are bad, okay? Uh, a core tenant of American liberalism. Uh, and then finally, uh, a fourth uh, proposition that democracy is uh, political democracy and representativeness is very important and so important that we'd rather have democracy uh, than political order. Now, in Hartz's view, uh, liberalism, this big L liberalism or the liberal tradition is so deeply ingrained that it's uh, at this point bipartisan. You could talk realistically about uh, Woodrow Wilson and Ronald Reagan uh, or these two guys. Uh, as both being part of America's uh, liberal tradition. Now, if that's all there was to it, uh, there, there would you know, really be no objection to this. I mean, I, and I don't want to be interpreted as coming up here and uh, giving a uh, lecture saying that there's something the matter with, uh, with liberalism or, or that I disagree with you know, the importance of individual uh, liberty and political democracy and free markets and things like that. That's not the argument. But what Hartz pointed out was that, uh, that there, there is a downside or there is a dark side to uh, uh, American liberalism. And in fact, Hartz argued, and I quote, that uh, at its core, American liberalism contains a deep and unwritten tyrannical compulsion. Okay. Um, and the evidence for that, uh, you know, you would point to would be the uh, international efforts to impose Lockeanism uh, everywhere. Um, and whether this is a unique function of American liberalism or whether, in fact, you can implicate other sorts of liberalisms you know, might be something that we would uh, talk about. One of Alex's uh, old colleagues at the University of Chicago, Uday Mehta, was he there when you were there? Okay, uh, has a very good book on uh, 19th century British liberalism. Uh, and colonialism, in, uh, in which the, uh, the uh, liberalism uh, was uh, one of the key buttresses uh, for uh, the, Br the British colonial project. Uh, and Jennifer Pitts uh, has a very good book contrasting British liberalism and continental liberalism uh, in part on some of these same issues. Um, I don't want to get into, well, eventually if I pursue this project, I'm going to have to pursue that uh, further. Uh, but my point is, is that whether you think it's unique to uh, American liberalism uh, or a function of liberalism more generally, uh, there seems to be this impulse to spread lock uh, around the world. And, and think about Kant's uh, famous essay, The Perpetual Peace. One of the propositions of the League of Republican Peace is the stipulation that every regime 
be Republican for the system uh, really to work. Um, and it seems to me that same logic in liberalism drives liberals uh, to spread liberalism in order to get all the good things that liberalism uh, is supposed to get us. How many times throughout American history have we fought perpetual war for, for, for perpetual peace? Uh, the uh, University of Texas historian uh, Robert uh, Devine had a very good book precisely by that uh, title, uh, chronicling how many times uh, in American history uh, the United States uh, fought wars to end all wars. Not only do we fight a lot of wars, and if you remember, you know, there, there's the uh, famous uh, uh, democratic peace the uh, finding that uh, no two democracies have gone to war with each other, arguably, since uh, 1815. Uh, the question why that's the case is much debated, but the, the empirical fact is pretty much accepted. The flip side to that is that uh, uh, democratic and liberal states are actually more likely than other types of regimes uh, to uh, actually go to war. So there's a lot of war going on uh, uh, by uh, democratic and liberal regimes, even if they're not uh, fighting with each other. Finally, liberal wars can be quite intense. Uh, if you're fighting wars to end all wars, uh, then things can be done, things can be justified, that in the normal course of things, uh, it seems to me uh, would not be accepted uh, in, in terms of war. Uh, Carl Schmitt in the concept of, a uh, of the political has a very famous line about the wars of humanity being the uh, most vicious of all wars. And I, I think there's a, uh, a good deal of truth to that. Okay, so that's the external side uh, of uh, what Hart's called Lockean absolutism. Uh, there's also an internal side to it. And in fact, when Hartz wrote his famous book in the 1950s, the key thing he had in mind uh, was McCarthyism, which he interpreted as being a manifestation of the uh, liberal tradition trying to extirpate uh, non-liberal uh, alternatives, in, in this case communism, uh, from American political life. Uh, Sam Huntington's famous book, The Soldier and the State, uh, is a Hartzian treatment of the problem of civil-military relations as a fundamental conflict between, on the one hand, uh, a liberal civil society and a conservative realist military. And the, the, the key source of tension uh, in Huntington's view, and you know, it's clearly a Hartzian <laughs> argument, is that civil liberal civilian society just finds it very difficult to live with this non-liberal institution uh, as an inextricable uh, part of it. I mean, I, I could go uh, on and on, but uh, in the, uh, the interest of time, uh, I'm going to uh, uh, move forward. Other than to simply say that the problem with liberalism in Hartz's view was, uh, or American liberalism for sure, uh, is the historical uh, problem that American liberalism developed without a knowledge of non-liberal intellectual uh, alternatives uh, and also a philosophical belief in the superiority of liberalism uh, that makes it inclined to regard any non-liberal way of thinking uh, is not only wrong but immoral. Okay. So if you accept Hartz's argument, then all of a sudden the, the, this paradoxical claim that liberalism can be quite illiberal, it seems to me at least theoretically, uh, is not crazy. Now, let me go to the... Uh, uh, to the next section um, and talk just a little bit uh, about the uh, Bush administration and the neoconservatives. 
uh, as being part of the liberal tradition. Now, they always tell you, I'm a, by the way, I'm a PowerPoint neophyte, uh, and uh, they tell you there are a couple of mistakes you can do in PowerPoint. And I, I've actually made them all uh, in, in recent weeks. Uh, one is, uh, and I made them both on this slide, one is when you do uh, the color of the font of the text uh, as the same color as the background, uh, and I think I fixed that. But then the related problem is when you put too much uh, on, one, uh, on one slide, uh, and I haven't fixed that. But the point here is to uh, simply suggest to you that if you do a comparison uh, of uh, liberals and neocons uh, on a number of sort of fundamental issues uh, of how the world works, uh, it seems to me that on a lot of them, uh, uh, you, you find uh, a surprising amount of overlap uh, between liberalism and uh, neoconservatism. Now, there are some big, big differences. Uh, and number seven, on the role of international institutions and more generally uh, on whether uh, you should conduct business unilaterally or multilaterally, uh, th that's a big difference between the two. Uh, although I think, uh, and I'll try to make the argument throughout the course of the talk, that this is really a tactical difference, but on the big differences of what objectives you're seeking in the world, there's actually a surprising amount of uh, overlap. Bush is a liberal. This might, I, I, I don't know, the first time anybody tells you this, how jarring it is on your ears. Uh, but when you think about it, uh, Bush has a lot of commonality. I mean, you know, uh, uh, David Kennedy, the uh, great diplomatic historian at Stanford, had a, had a fine piece uh, in The Atlantic uh, eight or nine months ago on what George W. Bush owes to Woodrow Wilson. Uh, and in fact, uh, Lawrence Kaplan in the New Republic uh, was happy to claim uh, both Wilson and Bush uh, as uh, part of the uh, neocon uh, view of the world. Now, the neoconservatives, uh, you know, I, one could start with Irving Kristol's famous characterization uh, of neoconservatives as liberals who got mugged. Um, and if you look at sort of the evolution of neoconservatism, uh, it clearly uh, evolved out of the uh, left of the American political spectrum. Uh, and my only point is to say uh, that uh, in that course of evolution, can I be talking about evolution here in Ohio? <laughs> I guess uh, after, after a day or two ago I can. Uh, but they haven't evolved uh, all that far uh, in many important respects. But let me see if I can give you uh, a little bit more concrete evidence to, uh, to support this claim. And remember the, uh, the, the four uh, specific implications uh, in American liberalism uh, that I had identified before. Let's talk about development being easy, okay? Well, that, that belief uh, characterized, for example, the liberal political development school that uh, arose uh, in the, uh, among the Cambridge and MIT economists of the 50s and uh, 1960s. Um, and, you know, these guys were sort of classic uh, American liberals. Compare that to what uh, Bush wrote uh, in the uh, 2002 National Security Strategy in Chapter 8 on economic development and the Millennium Challenge Program. Uh, again, uh, a belief that if we just change the incentives uh, for third world development and foreign aid, uh, capitalism will take off like a shot. Uh, so this idea that development's easy, this is a common, uh, a, a common belief 
uh, across the political se- uh, spectrum and sort of trans-historical. All good things go together, the democratic peace. The democratic peace actually has a you know, long pedigree in American politics. I defy you, uh, if I were to take uh, Clinton's 1996 national security strategy, white out his name and the date on it, and then do the same thing with Bush's 2002 national security strategy, uh, I, I'm guessing that, uh, that very few of you would be able to tell the difference, because both of them embrace in a huge way the democratic peace. And again, for the same sort of reason, that with democracy uh, will come all sorts of uh, good things. Radicalism and revolution being bad? Well, think of what Woodrow Wilson said uh, uh, during the, uh, uh, the Mexican Revolution and to justify one of his periodic incursions. We need to teach the Mexicans to elect good men. Now, it seems to be a, more than a faint echo of that in what the Bush administration said in response to the Hamas uh, election uh, in the uh, Palestinian territories. We're proposing a, a, a series of uh, economic sanctions to basically teach the Palestinians to uh, elect good men. And more generally, the Bush administration's attitude towards Islamic uh, uh, fundamentalism has uh, had a lot of Wilsonianism about it. Uh, finally, democracy being more important than order. Uh, Jimmy Carter was uh, willing to push his human rights agenda uh, to such an extent that it threatened the hold on power of American allies like the Shah of Iran and Anastasio Somoza in Nicaragua. And, and when I heard Donald Rumsfeld in April of 2003 responding to uh, the looting that was going on in Iraq, and I, I'll just take the liberty of quoting here, he said, Freedom's untidy, and free people are free to make mistakes and commit crimes and do bad things. They're also free to live their lives and do wonderful things. Democracy more important uh, than order. Uh, Seems pretty clear in Rumsfeld's case. Okay, so let me then go uh, to the the whole question of uh, the links between the liberal tradition uh, in t- today's illiberal policies. Uh, and I'll try to wind this up relatively quickly so there's lots of time for discussion. What's my evidence uh, that the liberal tradition is ultimately what's uh, behind this? Four things. First of all, and this is what I went over in the previous section, uh, Bush and the neocons pretty clearly buy into the liberal tradition's key assumptions. Okay. Secondly, I, I want to give you evidence in this part of the talk that lots of liberals... Uh, small-l liberals also support many of these illiberal policies in the United States, suggesting that they're far more bipartisan uh, than uh, we would you know, normally think. Thirdly, I also want to show that the Bush administration's rationales for doing these things and the rationales offered uh, by uh, liberals uh, are remarkably similar. Uh, and then finally, uh, I want to also uh, try to provide some evidence that this isn't just rhetoric, that in fact the Bush people really believe it. And the key rhetoric, or I mean the key evidence here, is that the Bush administration says the same thing in private that it does in public about advancing these things. So just very quickly, hegemony and empire. For those of you who think that this uh, was a, a new innovation uh, by the Bush administration, I'd invite you to go back and listen to what Secretary of State Madeleine Albright told the Europeans when they got uppity about our relatively unilateral intervention uh, in Kosovo. She said, if we have to use force, it's because we are America. 
We are the indispensable nation. We stand tall. We see further into the future. So when Condi Rice, uh, eight or nine or seven or eight years later, said uh, characterized uh, the United States as the world's guardian, she really wasn't saying anything much different than what uh, uh, Albright had said earlier. What about preventive war? Okay, uh, Bush's fullest articulation uh, for a policy of preventive war was laid out in a commencement speech at uh, uh, at West Point, and we're all familiar with the. Uh, uh, with the rationale for that, what was really striking was not that this rationale, uh, well, that this rationale did not generate uh, thunderous opposition, and in fact, a lot of people who, in other contexts, you might have uh, expected to oppose it, chimed in and endorsed it. And in the paper, uh, I've got a uh, quote from Leon Wieseltier, the uh, uh, the uh, literary editor of the New Republic, one of the sort of staple journals of American liberalism, uh, outlining a well-articulated argument about how liberalism and preventive war are by no means incompatible. Restricting civil liberties. Now, surely this must be a case uh, where American liberals, both big L and little l, uh, ought to be off the reservation with the Bush administration. I mean, who could endorse... Uh, the extreme position that uh, former uh, Attorney General John Ashcroft took uh, on the USA Patriot Act. Well, none other than America's foremost civil libertarian, Alan Dershowitz, uh, whose key re, you know his key line on this whole thing was uh, to echo uh, Ashcroft's uh, claim that uh, people should relax and uh, learn to live with a much more constrained set of civil liberties. Okay, but torture. Now, surely on torture, uh, there must be uh, substantial voices uh, from the uh, liberal community clamoring to uh, oppose torture. But even here, it's hard to find them. Uh, and in fact, uh, uh, Senator Jay Rockefeller from uh, West Virginia, uh, Charles Schumer from New York, otherwise avatars of uh, liberalism uh, in the Democratic Party uh, both uh, found ways to rationalize uh, torture in the context of the, uh, the global war on terrorism. And in fact, this isn't just a, uh, a post-9-11 development. Uh, the debate uh, or the discussion, it hasn't been a debate because liberals have basically all agree on this point, that there are circumstances in which torture can be used. You know, this was a, a discussion that began with Michael Walzer you know, 20 or 30 years ago, and that Alan Dershowitz has uh, picked up recently in the context of the uh, Israeli suppression of the, uh, the Intifada. Now, there are two arguments that liberals have made that uh, torture, the, the, the fundamental prohibition or norm against torture can be uh, breached. One is the famous ticking bomb scenario. Uh, you know, you've got a... Uh, uh, a terrorist uh, or suspected terrorist in custody that you think uh, has knowledge that if you can get it out of him or her in a half hour, you can save hundreds uh, of lives. Um, and uh, this has been the, uh, you know, sort of the standard uh, liberal justification for torture under extreme circumstances. But there's a new justification that's come out that, in fact, is even less restrictive. And this is an argument that uh, John Yu, uh, the Berkeley uh, law professor, but who became famous or infamous uh, for his role 
uh, at working for uh, Attorney General uh, Ashcroft, there's an argument, a new argument that's coming out that says uh, that uh, the uh, uh, combatants who are apprehended in the global war on terrorism are not subject to uh, the Geneva Conventions and other rules of war uh, because uh, they are uh, they are basically beyond the pale of civilization. Okay, now this was uh, essentially used rationale, and you'd think at least here uh, that the uh, you know the classic liberal thinkers uh, in American political discourse would distance themselves from that. Uh, but Dershowitz didn't. Uh, Jean Bethke Elstein from the uh, Divinity School at the University of Chicago, and even Michael Walzer uh, have all found that this argument that uh, terrorists be just because of the uh, the uh, the tactics that they uh, employ have placed themselves beyond the uh, the, the norms of uh, of civil society okay so again not a lot of opposition uh, in those uh, quarters as well and in in fact Elstein and Waltz are very smart people who've devoted a lot of effort to uh, trying to uh, reconcile liberalism with these uh, illiberal policies. Okay, the last thing that I want to, uh, uh, whoop. <laughs> no, I, we can go to that. The, the last thing I want to try to lay out before I uh, uh, throw myself at the mercy of the court here uh, is my uh, argument about realism as a counterweight to liberal, liberalism. Now, I, I think this is a very Hartzian uh, approach. Remember, Hartz was, uh, in his context, uh, a, uh, a liberal. He thought that what he was doing was identifying problems within liberalism and coming up with uh, a way to uh, reform liberalism. He was not an anti-liberal. Now, I'm not going to say I'm not an anti-liberal. I'm just going to leave that up to your imagination. Uh, but I do think that the project that I'm engaged here is Hartzian in the sense that I'm not proposing uh, doing away with American liberalism. I guess Randy wrote a paper about realism as fascism, which I love to read. Um, but that's not what I'm what I'm doing today. Rather, what I'm trying to say is to pick up on Hartz's uh, fundamental argument that the problem uh, with uh, uh, American liberalism is the lack of intellectual diversity. That's the core of the problem. And the problem I see is that uh, there aren't really fundamental differences uh, within the political spectrum uh, of our country on a lot of these issues. There are, to be sure, tactical differences. The neocons uh, are happy to operate unilaterally and don't have much use for multilateral institutions. But in terms of the common ends, there's surprisingly little disagreement. The idea, the notion of spreading democracy, that's apple pie, motherhood, Chevrolet, and spreading democracy. Those are the four key tenets of modern American liberalism. Okay, so why would realism be better? And let me just go through this uh, uh, really quickly. First of all, uh, I think Realpolitik offers a perspective on the global war on terrorism that would take some of the panic uh, out of how we look at it. Um, this idea, and I've got a great quote from Bush in the paper uh, that, uh, you know, where he argues that uh, the global war on terrorism is more threatening than the Cold War. Uh, and how one can say that a major superpower war where both sides were armed to the teeth conventionally and with nuclear weapons uh, and where, if we'd have actually gone to war, we'd have not only gotten our hair must, 
as they say, as uh, General Turgeson said in Dr. Strangelove. But you know, we, we had a realistic possibility of ending life as we know it. Now, comparing the global war on terrorism, uh, I was as shocked as anybody else uh, on uh, Tuesday, uh, September 11, 2001, with the attack in New York. But when you go back and you sort of run the math uh, on what costs al-Qaeda has imposed on us, uh, if you start from the wor first World Trade Center attack uh, in 1993 and take it up through the present and ask how many Americans have been killed by al-Qaeda, uh, the number is uh, right around 3,000. Now, how many Americans died in one day at Pearl Harbor? How many Americans died throughout uh, the course of World War I and World War II? How many Americans died in Vietnam or in all the wars of the Cold War? You've got to put this into context. Uh, and realism uh, counsels uh, a prudent caution but not panic. And the liberal tradition, I think, leads us to panic. Secondly, the nature of the adversaries that we face. The liberal tradition sees uh, or portrays them uh, as mindless religious fanatics, uh, people that can only be converted or extirpated. Uh, I think the realist view would have a, uh, a more balanced view. We don't see al-Qaeda as 10 feet tall. Uh, to be sure, there's going to be a, a real military fight uh, with some elements of al-Qaeda. But you know, on the other hand, these, these people aren't crazy. Uh, this idea uh, of using terrorism is uh, uh, a form of asymmetric warfare that shouldn't have caught us all that uh, by surprise. Thirdly, I think realists are more comfortable with radicalism internationally, and particularly radical nationalism. Uh, and the reason for that is that nationalism for us is the key animating mechanism in balancing in international politics. So the point is, again, not that all uh, that we can live with all radical nationalism, but on the other hand, radical nationalism uh, rarely poses a major threat to the United States, and it is uh, a, uh, an important part of the balancing dynamics of international politics. What about on the protection of uh, human rights and the prohibition against torture? If you go back and look at the torture papers, and they're actually all compiled in one handy volume, the people that were most bullshy uh, about throwing the Geneva Convention out the window were invariably civilians, either in the Department of Justice, in the White House, or the Office of the Secretary of Defense. The most eloquent defense of maintaining the Geneva Conventions and of treating uh, al-Qaeda and uh, Taliban uh, prisoners as enemy prisoners of war uh, with some, uh, some uh, of the uh, pr protections of the Geneva Conventions were uh, Judge Advocate General Corps uh, officers in uniform. Now, this was a pragmatic argument. It wasn't really a principled argument. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, they understood that pragmatically, even though al-Qaeda was quite likely to violate these things, that maintaining a regime of the protection of uh, prisoners of war uh, was in our interest. Uh, and uh, we're quite skeptical uh, of the uh, early Bush administration efforts to relax it. By the way, I think they also understood that what happened with the migration of what was supposed to be limited extreme measures uh, against al-Qaeda in Afghanistan to uh, Camp X-Ray in Guantanamo Bay, and then ultimately to Iraq at Abu Ghraib and other locations was inevitable. 
there's a slippery slope. You know, once you say, well, you know, Ramsey bin al-Sheed, we're going to waterboard him, uh, then it's very hard to limit it to him and, you know, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and a few other of the top-tier prisoners because very quickly, uh, those, once you breach that prohibition, uh, down you go. And then finally, realists uh, have been in the forefront of arguing that uh, hegemony uh, might not only be unnecessary for the United States but might actually be counterproductive. So this is my story. Uh, I'm going to stick to it through today, uh, but uh, I look forward to your, uh, your comments and suggestions because I am very early in this and uh, I really do need to uh, think a lot of these things through. Alex? Friendly? Friendly comments, yes. I guess I want to make two quick comments and a very quick question. I'll, I'll try to get past here. Um, first of all, from where I sit in the sort of IR world of things, there's a bit of a reinvention of the rule of politics for this argument. But a lot of postmodern scholars, critical IR scholars, have been arguing for some time the brief that liberalism is constitutionally predisposed toward a need to extirpate different, extirpate the other, and so on. Um, so they would probably agree with you. Just one, one small, one small bad part of it. Now you're saying I'm a postmodern. Okay. Okay. Alrighty. I mean, the, the, uh, your, your points uh, were, uh, were excellent. Uh, specifically, the question of uh, liberalism and, and what it is about liberalism specifically that makes it intolerant of difference. Uh, and that's going to require me to do a lot more thinking about liberalism because I'm, I'm sort of, after reading uh, Meta, uh, I'm coming to believe uh, that, that, that there's a broader problem with liberalism uh, beyond what Hart's identified in American liberalism. Now, the, the, the Pitts book, and I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm giving you my summer reading list uh, book report, uh, but the Pitts book suggests a, uh, a, a very interesting difference between continental liberalism and British liberalism on the issue of colonialism. Uh, and it seems to me that uh, you know one uh, avenue to uh, look into is what were the overlaps between uh, our liberal tradition and 19th century liberalism in Britain, you know, that became, became the uh, handmaiden to uh, British colonialism. 
Um, and uh, that's where I think I've got to go before I'm going to be able to give you a good answer to that question. Now, apropos of your gotcha point, uh, I, I, and, and again, I'm so early into the project, I can only uh, uh, raise this possibility, but you'll remember it, and if I don't end up delivering on it, no, no doubt you'll uh, give me grief about it, Alex. Um, but I think that one of the, one of the arguments that you, could, that you might be able to make about a commonality between Britain and the United States is that both the liberalisms evolved in relatively benign environments, you know, Britain being a, uh, uh, an isolated uh, uh, island, the United States through most of the 19th century being relatively isolated as well, too. So I'd have to look more, about, more at that, but the, you know, there is a possibility that one could write the Hart's argument more broadly and say the difference between Anglo-American liberalism which is more subject to the, these illiberal tendencies than European liberalism might come in there. That would be good, because that would get me off the, uh, uh, I, I turn traitor and uh, uh, join the ranks of the enemy, or, or I'm inconsistent. Uh, but as a fallback position, I, you know, I'll be happy to uh, take my lumps uh, on either of those. So well, you wouldn't have to see them as inconsistent. You could see realism and more cultural arguments as actually complementary. Right. Uh, right. Uh, Tim? Uh, you know, open letters and things like that. 
uh, th this idea that uh, you know these th these people came out of nowhere after 9/11 is increasingly uh, unsustainable. Now, if uh, what's his name, Paul O'Neill, is to be believed, uh, the first cabinet meeting uh, that uh, Bush held after his inauguration, you know, sort of item number one on the agenda was Iraq. This is, if my history is right, well before 9/11. But not building a, a democratic Iraq. No, 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 no. The, the, the idea of the democratic domino theory, and here, you've you got to go back to the 90s and remember the coalition that came together to support Clinton's uh, assertive American policy in defense of human rights and you know, humanitarian intervention. Uh, these neocons were, were on board. They were signing newspaper ads supporting uh, uh, Clinton going into uh, uh, Bosnia and Kosovo and chiding him for not going into uh, Rwanda. Uh, the the uh, uh, Iraq Freedom Act was it uh, in 1998? I mean that was that was pushed through by this you know sort of same coalition. So this idea that uh, uh, that uh, spread of democracy was uh, a panacea to America's strategic problems in the Middle East had a relatively long pedigree. So what I would have said to him if you'd have gone after me with, you know, Rummy and Cheney, uh, I, I would have said that the key driving intellectual forces were not these guys. These guys, especially Cheney. Cheney was part of the much hated Bush 41 administration uh, that dropped the ball in Iraq, that didn't finish the job, that traitorously uh, sold out the uh, Iraqi Shia when they arose uh, in response to our uh, to our call. These people, uh, you know, the, the neocons were unhappy with that from the get-go, and people like Rumsfeld and Cheney, especially, who was, you know, part of that decision within the Bush administration, were the people that came around, not vice versa. Now, if I sound like I've got old-time religion on this, I do, because I wrote a piece on uh, the uh, neoconservatism and realism in the summer of 2001, uh, in the context of what direction I thought the Bush administration was going. Uh, and I thought I did, in all humility, uh, a good job of sort of laying out the different views uh, and what the different uh, agendas were. I made the mistake of thinking because uh, Don Rumsfeld, rather than Paul Wolfowitz, became Secretary of Defense, uh, that Condi Rice was the National Security Advisor, and that Colin Powell was the Secretary of State, that, that somehow that meant that realism was ascended and the neocons got, you know, basically the booby prize. Now, in retrospect, I think I was entirely wrong about that. Part of it was, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't know enough, you know, Washington inside baseball to, to really understand it. But part of it, I think, uh, and part of it might have been wishful thinking. You know, realists always like to see uh, realism prosper in those rare moments that it does. Uh, but I, I think part of it, too, was uh, my lack of understanding about how totally uh, they dominated the intellectual debate. Now, this isn't to say that 9-11 wasn't, you know, wasn't part of this, but it is to say that uh, the stage had been set you know, well back in the 90s for these guys uh, to uh, take the helm. And in fact, there's lots of evidence that uh, you know, they were already influencing a lot of policy. Uh, John? Yeah, um, let me make two points. One, uh, it follows up on, on what Tim was saying. 
I mean, what happens when the country feels threatened is liberals and neoliberals you know, jump on the bandwagon, restrict civil liberties, and Roosevelt and the Japanese in jails with Lincoln Living, got rid of habeas corpus. There's liberals who created during the McCarthy era concentration camps, which are communist and could be an emergency. So it does seem to be the really intelligent thing is really much more 9 11 that what happens is you may have people who are interested in doing things like making the Middle East safe for Israel and find a use of that in the general policy uh, environment because they now have some identity. But uh, with Bush and, and kind of Lisa Rice radically changing, um, it suggests that the whole thing basically, you know, they've got this, this uh, epiphany Yeah, but remember the, the, the torture debate, and again, we don't think Anything. about it because the torture debate really, empiric, or not empirically, but its policy focus during the 90s was on what the Israelis were doing in the context of the uh, suppression of the first and second uh, Al-Aqsa Intifada. Right. But well before 9-11, the- There's you know, love torture on this one. Right, right, but some of Dean, Beth Bielstein, and Michael Watson. They, now, they don't love it the way, you know, Dershowitz lays awake at night, well, what, what fantasizes about the best way to torture people. But already, the rationale uh, for, uh, you know, for, for reconciling torture with liberalism, all the groundwork had been done before 9-11. All the groundwork had been done uh, before 9-11 in uh, arguing that the spread of democracy uh, was going to not only uh, be true to our values, but also uh, pay off in concrete policy dividends by uh, democratic peace, uh, by the, uh, the uh, reinforcement of free trade, uh, by the uh, suppression of terrorism and things like that. So I don't, on the one hand, I don't want uh, to be, to go too far and to, to say that 9-11 wasn't very important. But on the other hand, I think you don't want to go to the other extreme and ignore the fact that a lot of you know a lot of this had already been going on before 9/11. Um, and uh, well, did any of this happen without 9/11? Would there have been torture? Would there have been invasion? Uh, yeah, they, well, this, yeah, they, they, this was the, the argument I had with your uh, colleague Ted Hot at uh, dinner last night because he wants to believe that uh, Bill Clinton, uh, if only Bill Clinton, you know, we repealed uh, whatever amendment that is that restricts uh, presidents from a third or fourth term. If old Bill were in were in power, everything would have been different. I might have done the same thing, but only because of 9-11. Say without 9-11, not without Bush. I, I, think, uh, I think hegemony, I think we'd still have been pursuing hegemony uh, if uh, Clinton was in power. Uh, I think, but we were already. Kosovo and Boston would serve back to the It's more than that. It's more than that. the indispensable they just one other thing. Can you sure, name, the, name the realists who have said terrorism is not a very big threat in print? I said it here today. I know. Why not a, not a uh, realist? Said it. You went yeah. here. Yeah, I know. I'm trying to say all that tradition. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not Waltz. Waltz is Chris Lane. No, Waltz is different. Oh, okay. That's Chris Lane. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, the, the rap on uh, Pates, one of the raps on Pates for normalization of suicide terrorism. I mean, I think, I'd have to go back and look at it again, chapter and verse. Does he, does he actually say suicide terrorism is not a big deal? Well, he's a vested interest in it being a big deal because that's what's uh, selling soap. Uh, but I also think that, you know, in, in looking at how people have reacted to the book, one of the things that really drives him, two things drive people crazy. One is the normative thing, uh, 
treating it basically as a form of asymmetric warfare. But secondly, you know, the, the policy punchline of Facebook is to basically say there are a few things that we can do to, you know, to win this war, and they're relatively speaking uh, minor things. And they, you know, they don't involve the uh, more uh, expansive uh, waging of the global war on terrorism that the, the Bush administration uh, has engaged in. Um, I mean, I, I, I guess I'd go back uh, and, uh, you know, Okay, well, I mean, you quote me, uh, if I ever get this thing accomplished, but <laughs> that's an iffy, uh, iffy proposition, but I, I'd be happy to. I just uh, want you to have more company. Yeah. <laughs> you never have any company. I'm like uh, Imperial Germany, I'm self-encircled. <laughs> I actually... Okay. I'm, I'm sorry, who are you? Uh, Dan Maxson. Oh, damn. I wanted to, uh, I mean, I wanted to, to share the, the sort of launch realm, and I'm completely convinced that it was convinced before you wrote this paper Send you things to that effect, but um, I wanted to, to, to push you on a couple of things. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll skip the step, but I think that well, it's interesting. I would be very careful about suggesting that British liberalism is all benign security environment. British liberalism is that blocking some criterions of talking about the 17th and 18th century, which are very poor security environments for British. Block uh, is not for nothing. We're So implication, I want to start with your implications. It seems to me there's a, there's a self-contradiction in this room. If you are right, and I think you are right in maybe a modified sense that the Hart's thesis is correct, right? That, that American uh, political discourse is so suffused by liberalism that alternative kinds of discourses are be squeezed out, right? But if you want to make a sustained argument that can gain political traction, you have to do so from within kind of political assumptions, and realism can never be counterweight. Realism right? will never gain political traction to the extent that it is you know, illiberal in some of these four propositions. The only logical <coughs> counterweight that we have available would not be realism, no matter how correct the realist arguments are, it would be a kind of Eichenberry-style privileging of liberal order over, um, that is, the order for its own sake, over sort of expansionist liberalism and democratic you know, progressive democracy. So it seems to me that if you're right, uh, your alternative would be strong from a political standpoint. Um, secondly, uh, I am actually, uh, this sort of comes out of John's comments, our comments, I'm actually concerned with the lack of politics, right, in the sense that there's sort of these broad cultural structures that are doing all of the work for the argument. But clearly, um, a lot of the, the, there is not only a bureaucratic, but a larger sort of politics of this, the impact of September 11th. Uh, the impact of the sort of ramping up of rhetoric or terrorism makes certain kinds of arguments more difficult to make uh, than they might otherwise be. Liberal arguments against torture, for example, or uh, liberal arguments against democracy promotion become not only maybe constitutively difficult, but more pragmatically difficult to make in the context of the current security environment. And indeed, uh, people like uh, Ron Krebs in his response to Hunt Hawkins' persuasion piece make the point that there's sort of the political manipulation, the psychological effects of September 11th may have profound repercussions, even within kind of a liberal tradition, for, for the fact that you know, <coughs> not only sort of 
pro-Israeli Dershowitz, but um, sort of more moderate uh, reform liberals like Elstein or even Michael Walter, who's not a liberal, who self-destructs and stuff, so the Democrat might then feel compelled to sort of rationalize uh, some of these kinds of policies. Uh, the last thing I wanted to push you on was alternative arguments. It strikes me that there are three alternative arguments that you need to engage with. Um, one is a kind of realist organized democracy. Right? In other words, if it's true that American political culture is suffused by liberalism, you would expect that rationalizations, both cognitive rationalizations uh, and policy, political rationalizations for actions, would be full of liberal norms. Right? So it may be that the United States uh, is responding in a, in a sort of realist way, right? maybe incorrectly, but in a realist way to certain elements of the security environment, that there are <coughs> self-reinforcing aspects of the norms talk about liberalism that, that do some of your explanatory powers. So there's a kind of realist There's a second realist alternative, which is what Alex was talking about, the Schmittian alternative. Right? If Schmitt's right about the nature of politics, otherification, and existential threats, and you can find this argument in the securitization this isn't liberalism, right? This isn't a common pathology of liberalism. It's a common pathology of securitization. It's a common pathology of fighting warfare, right? So if your argument, if you want to gain traction in your argument, it seems to me it can't be an inside-out argument. You need to at least compare other instances of, uh, of mobilization for warfare against internal external threats or, or similarly situated threats in other political traditions, Russia would be an obvious example of this in Chechnya, to see whether or not it's the Schmidtian logic that's doing the work or the liberal logic. The third kind of alternative would simply be a kind of imperial alternative, right? Power justifies itself. American power justifies itself on liberal grounds. Uh, French power justifies itself on French grounds. But all of these Th things, This is the Athenians of Milos, the strong, so, yeah. You know, it may be that, that power has to justify itself in ideologically absolute ways, particularly if you're a hegemonic or imperial character. And then this has <coughs> kind of structural ramifications that are maybe modified by the presence of liberalism, but are not itself generated by a uh, those are uh, all terrific comments, uh, and I'm not sure uh, in the interest of getting uh, uh, a lot more. Uh, no, 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 no. I, uh, I'm in your debt because there are lots of things to think about, and you know, some of these. Ho hopefully, you and I might be able to uh, continue uh, via email or something like that. Let me just take a, a stab at two of them, uh, just because I think it's incumbent when you give a talk not to just say. Good comments. I'll think about them. Um, <clears throat> on the benign security environment and liberalism, I, I, the first liberal for me is Hobbes. Uh, Alex is gone, so it's good. I could say this. Probably drive him crazy. But the you know, political theory tradition I come from regards uh, Hobbes as the, uh, the first uh, liberal political thinker. Hobbes' discussion in Leviathan is quite interesting. For him, the problem of the state of nature uh, is basically internal conflict uh, within the group. And in fact, once the state or the Leviathan is formed, Hobbes actually has a very benign view of international politics. I mean, this is what the, the uh, political theorists uh, always criticize uh, realists for uh, using Hobbes or Hobbes' metaphor, the state of nature for international politics, is we, we misunderstand that Hobbes' view that once you form the state, international politics is a relatively easy thing, that the... Uh, the uh, state of nature is uh, uh, mostly individuals in the state of nature, and that states are uh, uh, are a lot stronger. So I guess, I mean, I take I take your point that uh, 
the, if I'm going to try to respond to uh, Alex uh, with this uh, threat argument, I'm going to have to look a lot more carefully at it. But at least it seems to me uh, that starting with Hobbes, liberalism has had a far more benign view of international politics uh, than not. And even Hobbes, who most of us interpret as being, uh, you know, as having uh, the, uh, the, the, you know, the most uh, dangerous view, really, you know, when he talks about states rather than individuals, he, he ends up thinking that, uh, or coming down, that states live a, a pretty easy life. Um, the argument about the uh, self-contradiction, I'm saying liberals can't uh, tolerate uh, non-liberals uh, ipso facto, a non-liberal alternative uh, isn't going to fly. Uh, I think American liberals can't, and maybe British liberals. It's not clear to me, even you know, if you accept Hartz's argument, that all forms of liberalism are equally uh, in, uh, impermeable to uh, non-liberal uh, thoughts. So I'm not sure that that's a, a, as big of a, uh, a self-contradiction uh, as it uh, might appear, uh, but uh, you're right, I do need to, to give that some, uh, some more thought. Um, the final thing is the uh, organized hypocrisy thing. I mean, all your, all your alternative explanations uh, are ones that I have to uh, grapple with there. I do in the paper talk about what I think would be the Mearsheimer response to my argument, which is, you know, uh, he had that uh, article in the University of Chicago magazine, Liberal Rhetoric, Rhetoric Realist Behavior. And I was sort of hoping somebody would raise that one because I, you know, I think what, what I have is the, you know, the out of the ballpark response to it, which is simply say if it were organized hypocrisy, then why do realists like Waltz and Cannon in the Vietnam period uh, and Waltz and Mearsheimer today have so much to carp about in terms of American foreign policy? American foreign policy was really driven uh, so much by the imperatives of realpolitik, there'd be nothing to criticize, but it's precisely the fact uh, that the United States has behaved in uh, uh, a fashion that uh, many realists, for I think good deductive reasons based on how realists view the world, finds to be at variance with it. Uh, so I'm sorry to make you the uh, Mearsheimer straw man, but uh, it's the, the law of the instrument, please. Um, and, and your name, please. Um, Yeah, the, the, the global war on terrorism now is a generational struggle. Now, now they tell us. For 12, it's because the non-stockness of Americans' uh, 
but he describes why America is so unique in the, in, in the midst of prosperity. Elsewhere, people need to relax. <coughs> but we never stop at fast food, fast computer cheese, fast cars. You know, now we're taking the war against terrorism uh, non-stop way. And this is another uh, kind of uh, the, the pursuit of speed, space is almost unlimited. Third, they try to trace the American thinking as what I have to you describe it, the lack of intellectualism. And he, he was shocked actually to see in America education means just the practical. There's no deep philosophical study. Incidentally, in 19, uh, 2004, Senator Huntington's book, Who Are We, also uh, made a, a big uh, argument that the more books you read, the lack of Right. <laughs> uh, I, well, I don't think he believed that. I, I wouldn't be surprised if this comes from now, from Hitler, but this is from a big scholar. And, and I could describe people with education as first unpatriotic, and you will believe that. You will not uh, uh, go with the majority. Yeah. So these are lots of uh, uh, identities, traditional uh, uh, political cultures, rather than your definition as uh, liberalism, yeah. American you're, you're, you're absolutely right that Tocqueville is key. Tocqueville was key for hearts, uh, and I think Tocqueville is key for this project, not only in terms of America, but also in terms of a comparative treatment of liberalism. Because the, the liberalism I haven't said anything about, because I don't know much about it, is the, the French liberalism that, uh, that Tocqueville knew intimately. And democracy in America was written uh, primarily in that context of explaining America to, uh, uh, to the French. Um, I, I, I had to... I'm going well, to elsewhere, you, you, you have other, uh, you know, extremism, but in the they're all the time. Um, extremism in the defense I mean, of liberty is no vice. <laughs> but, but America is a society without so-called deep culture, like, like the French or the French, or no matter who is in power, the Russian or the Russian. So how do you react? Uh, I'm not going to react. <laughs> Randy, I'm sorry, I should have, you, you've been in line for a long time. Oh, Walter Russell Mead.
yet another response. Uh, I, I don't think, I think personally, uh, the Cold War imposed certain structural constraints on the liberal tradition in the United States. That, you know, it was no accident, comrade, that the key manifestations of the liberal tradition were domestic uh, politics, McCarthyism, uh, and then as Robert Packenham documents in his superb book, uh, Liberal America and the Third World, in our economic development strategy, primarily in Latin America, and that realism, you know, sort of dominated the high politics of that. And, and my argument is that the reason, you know, we saw the liberal tradition come back with a vengeance in the 1990s was, you know, in part the end of the Cold War. Of course, you know, 9-11 was sort of exacerbated. Please. Um, I had a chance to read your paper and enjoyed your, your talk very much. And I, I'm certainly sympathetic to the argument that there's a lot of continuity. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, your, your name is? Oh, okay. I'm the story. Uh, George the Herring's. Uh, perspective, uh, I heard a fellow diplomatic historian give a talk at a conference last uh, summer in which he, he compared George Bush to Woodrow Wilson and made some compelling points, and, and many other historians have as well. But what, what I found less persuasive about your talk is you begin with a puzzle that you're seeking to explain, and that puzzle is one that underscores change over time. You want to know why American liberalism is becoming increasingly illiberal. And your examples of that are all examples that I would call tactical shifts. The decision to invade Iraq, the decision to use torture more freely, the decision to uh, curtail civil liberties. But when you make your, your argument for broad continuity, you focus not on tactics, but on ends. Now, I could say to you, as I often say to students, if you look at ends throughout 20th century American foreign policy, if you think broadly enough, they're all the same. All American leaders want a world that's more stable, more peaceful, more orderly, more predictable, a world characterized by democratic processes and free trade. That's Wilson, that's Clinton, that's Bush, that's everybody. But if you're focusing on these broad continuities, how does that get you to an explanation of, of the, the, what many perceive as a shift in American policy under Bush? Unlike you, I guess, I believe that Clinton or Gore would A, not have invaded Iraq, B, not have gone so freely towards torture and the use of Guantanamo Bay, and would not have restricted civil liberties. And my evidence for that is the very partisan debate on all of those issues right now, your continuity framework, it seems to me, is hard-pressed to explain the very sharp differences that divide people. Yeah. Uh, uh, excellent comments. Uh, the, the big philosophical issue is one, uh, or not philosophical, but methodological issue, is one that I've wrestled with because I've heard it before, i.e., the liberal tradition is a constant, you're saying, but uh, you're, you can't use a constant to explain variation. Uh, and that's why I argue uh, in the paper, and I'm going to, you know, in whatever I do further with this, expand upon it, that it's the liberal tradition plus other things. Uh, in my response to Randy, it's the, uh, the change in the, uh, the strategic context that I think uh, plays a big role in whether and how the liberal tradition manifests itself. I don't think during the Cold War the liberal tradition manifested itself as much across the board uh, as it uh, you know, has since the end of the Cold War. And for me, the key variable there is the Soviet threat. There's no way 
we could pursue these objectives uh, when the cost of going to war with the adversary was mutual annihilation. So you're right, that's, a, that, that's an issue that I, I've got to spell out more, more clearly in, in the- In your framework, you love Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan together, and that reminds me of a book that Tony Smith wrote some years ago that you might know, America's Mission, and I think he was taken to task for doing too much lumping and getting to the point where Ronald Reagan becomes indistinguishable from uh, Jimmy Carter and John F. Kennedy. Take the issue of human rights. I mean, that's squarely in the liberal tradition, isn't it? But you want Reagan and Carter to be liberal. Carter pushed for a human rights tradition, and Reagan tried to bury it. That's got to be explained. That's in the context of the Cold War as well. I mean, I think the danger of doing too much lumping is that you lose the nuance that you need to explain difference. I'm being too much of a political scientist. I've heard, heard these, uh, uh, these sort of critiques <coughs> from uh, uh, diplomatic uh, or historian colleagues. I mean, I think it's a, it, it's a fair point. Uh, I think the difference between Carter and Reagan is uh, uh, again, uh, more tactical than uh, strategic in many uh, important senses. But you do see, you know, I mean, Carter came out of the detente period. Reagan won was the reinvigoration of the Cold War. Reagan got pretty bolshy, not bolshy, but he got pretty enthusiastic about democratization uh, uh, after 1986. And in fact, uh, one of the key things was the, uh, the activities that his ambassador Harry Barnes to Chile, who played a key role in the uh, final, you know, sort of cleaning up the mess of military dictatorships in uh, uh, in Latin America. He did it with uh, with Reagan's uh, blessing. Now, but your your basic point is right. I've got to I've got to think through the uh, uh, the uh, continuity or the, the the constant versus the variation thing uh, to people's satisfaction uh, better than I have. Now. The issue uh, on uh, uh, Clinton and uh, Kerry and the shark debate, here I think we've gotta just agree to disagree. Part of it is it's counterfactual history. Um, and you know that, that's a useful exercise, but uh, can only take us so far. I, I would just simply say uh, that if, if we've seen a shark debate about any aspect of the Bush administration's foreign policy, uh, from any member of the Democratic Party that holds political office, I haven't heard. What is John, uh, John Kerry's uh, critique uh, of the Bush administration? What is Joe Biden's critique? Uh, and, and I have a quote in the paper where I said his, you know, his critique, which they, you know, they're implicated by their, uh, uh, you know, they were tripping all over each other to vote for the authorization for the use of force. And their critique comes down to he went to war unilaterally without allies, too quick. Where's somebody who said, aside from Howard Dean, who uh, I don't believe the head of the DNC is an elected political office in the Democratic Party uh, that has said uh, that this was a mistake uh, that we blew. There's been no sharp debate on this issue. It's been, there's been sharp debates uh, among some people in the, uh, you know, the, faculty, uh, uh, the faculty clubs on university campuses but the silence more generally is stunning. And the supine nature of the media in this country in the run up to war, especially people like Bob Woodward who in another era played a key role in exposing uh, the uh, perfidy of, a, uh, of an incumbent president. I mean, compare Woodward of the two books on Bush 
basically stenographer to the uh, uh, to the imperial court with the Bush of, or I mean with the Woodward uh, of uh, the Watergate period. And that's been, as Michael Massing and other people have pointed out, it's been unbelievable. So yeah, I mean, you and I both know people that you know were uh, were up in arms about various aspects of these things early on. You can always point to a few people, but what's stunning is uh, that it's only been a few people, and that a lot of people who, in other contexts, uh, were would have been uh, you know quite opposed to what's going on hopped on board. It, that's my I'm sorry if I've gone on ad nauseum. I've got to I'm going to say, I would love to see a study of the neoconservative uh, actual advocacy for which position. I remember fighting hard in 1989 against Daniel Pipes, who many would consider a neocon, because he was very pro-synonymous. He wrote an article in the, in the New York Times arguing why we should tilt towards uh, Iraq and Saddam, as did, as did Lori Gilroy. And you know, I would love to see a more a more fulsome discussion of this liberalism uh, coming from neoconservatives. Or I guess I'm really ending the talk by saying I think there's a lot to be explored that John and Tim were sort of pushing you on. I think we all need to think about uh, in terms of examining again uh, behavioral choice as opposed to rhetorical uh, trappings. Uh, I just don't know how we get at that. I can't believe I've come here to the center of constructivism and I are not being told rhetoric is irrelevant. There's none of us here who are realists. <laughs> There are four of us here, and maybe five. <laughs> but it's been great to have you back. Thank right. you so Thank much. You so much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, if, uh, other things occur to you, or if you do have the chance to look at the paper uh, later on, and uh, you have any comments, uh, my email's on there. Um, and uh, despite my uh, obduracy in defending the the uh, fort to the last Apache, <laughs> next Thursday, Minnesota, John Owen. Another big advocate of liberal foreign policy will be here. So.